From the heart of our nation's capital, here's Family Research Council President Tony Perkins. Welcome to Washington Watch, friends. So good to have you with us. You give us an hour and we give you a better understanding of the world you live in from a biblical worldview. I'm Joseph Backholm, sitting in for Tony today. Grateful to have you with us. A couple of reminders. Primary elections are tomorrow in both Florida and New York. If you live in either of those states, be sure to vote. And check out frcaction.org for voter resources and the voter guide there. It's appropriate probably that Florida and New York have their primary elections on the same day because half of New York now lives in Florida. In addition... Plan to join us in Standing for Life at the FRC and FRC Actions Pray, Vote, Stand Summit. So many great speakers, Sam Brownback, Dr. Ben Carson, Oz Guinness, Mike Huckabee, Dr. Albert Moeller, Ali Bestucky, and a whole bunch more. It's September 14th through the 16th. Register online at prayvotestand.org slash summit. That's prayvotestand.org slash summit. I will be there and look forward to seeing so many of you there. Today on the program, it's August, but there's still plenty of news. The Department of Justice has launched an investigation into the Southern Baptist Convention over their handling of sexual assault claims. Is this an appropriate use of police powers on behalf of the abused, or is the government meddling into religious organizations? We'll talk about that today. In addition... A group of Marines have won an early legal victory in their case against vaccine mandates. We'll tell you what happened and what it might mean for other soldiers threatened with dismissal for their refusal to get the COVID vaccine. Also, Dr. Fauci has announced his retirement today. What's his legacy? Also, is the COVID pandemic over or not? We'll talk about all of that with Dr. Jay Bhattacharya from Stanford University, one of Dr. Fauci's academic nemesis. All about this, and we'll talk all about that at the end of the program today. But our headlines for today, earlier today, a federal judge formally rejected the Justice Department's argument to keep the affidavit that led to the search warrant for former President Trump's residence under seal. Now, Judge Bruce Reinhart cited, quote, intense public and historical interest, end quote, in his filing this morning, adding that even if such disclosures are burdensome to future cases, the unprecedented nature of the raid warrants such transparency. Now, the Department of Justice has until noon Thursday to propose a redacted version of the affidavit for release. What will this mean? Joining me now to discuss this and other news from Washington is U.S. Representative Ralph Norman. He serves on the House Oversight Committee and the House Financial Services Committee and is a member of the House Freedom Caucus. He represents South Carolina's 5th Congressional District. Congressman Norman, good to see you today. Great to be with you, Joseph. Now, first off, how does this morning's filing, I want to talk about the uh, the affidavit news and, and the judge's uh, decision not to suppress the entire affidavit. Uh, how does his uh, his announcement today differ from what we learned last week? Well, I think the, the public pressure is getting to him, Joseph. I think he knows that the credibility of the uh, the FBI and the, really the DOJ is under under scrutiny right now, it, and it's a two tiered system of justice: one for Republicans uh, and then one for Democrats. So I think 
you know, the redacted version is what it concerns me. That they're going to have to release all of it at some point, and then the stress that it's not against it may have national security overtones, and they can't release it. Uh, that's kind of strange when they have no interest in any of the national security concerns with Hillary Clinton. They have no concern with Hunter Biden, with uh, the SARS, the suspicious activity reports and dealings with China. No curiosity there and so many other things. So they're going to have to release it. And then hopefully the redactions, they're going to have to have a real good explanation as to why that is. Congressman Norman, to that point, uh, theoretically, what would the Department of Justice be concerned about? What information could exist in that affidavit uh, that would be inappropriate to release to the public? Well, it's their interpretation. What they, the words that they say are, it could hinder the investigations of national security concerns. But now, I mean, look what happened. I mean, the 45th president's home was raided. The uh, they picked the safe. They would not let any of the lawyers or any any of Mr. Trump's, President Trump's uh, people look at what they're taking. Evidence could have been planted. And it's just a miscarriage of justice. And the American people see through it. So their words say that it could hinder investiga- future investigations. But again, that's not what their history has been. They have let, they've zeroed in on President Trump uh, and it's for political reasons. And that's, that's the only thing that it could be. And so we'll see how it turns out. Well, your colleague, Representative Mike Turner, uh, seems to agree with you. He's the lead Republican of the House Permanent Select Committee on Intelligence. And over the weekend, he was on CBS's Face the Nation. Here's what he said about the Mar-a-Lago raid. Let's play clip one. And the American public want the attorney general focused on issues like human and drug smuggling at the border. They were Chinese espionage, uh, out-of-control crime in our cities. But if it's if if it, you're going to turn to this, if you're going to turn to the former president and Mar Largo, they want to make certain that this is to the highest level. There's an imminent national security threat, and this affidavit will tell us did they even allege so. What's your re- response to his argument there? He's exactly right. I mean, he hit it on the uh, hit it on the head. This is just a diversion tactic to take uh, the you know the focus off what is the. Imp- the irreparable damage that this country is going through with open borders, with drugs killing our young people, uh, and with the violent crime that it brings with it. And so, you know, for them to focus on a presidential candidate, which is what they're scared to death of, and so I think they're trying to build a case that would disqualify him. Uh, there's no other reason that they would focus on him like they like they had been. It would be interesting if he was not a presidential candidate. All this would go away. They know that uh, he upsets the apple cart when it comes to uh, the DOJ and, and showing so many things that are wrong with this country and getting them back right. Uh, we're speaking with Congressman Ralph Norman from the great state of uh... South Carolina. Congressman Norman, I want to bring up a new topic with you because the White House just announced this morning that President Biden is going to host a summit to stand against racism and hate-fueled violence. We all oppose racism. We don't like hate-fueled violence. So in one sense, we're all on the same team here. But what's your reaction to this summit he's planning? You know, it's interesting, Joseph. Uh, You know, the 
the summer of rage uh, after the Dobbs ruling, you had 34 attacks on churches, 53 attacks on pregnancy centers, fire bombings, vandalism. You had over 150 cities that were completely torn to shreds. Uh, you had a Supreme Court justice whose life was threatened. Not one word from Joe Biden. Uh, to hold the people accountable in the case of the uh, would-be assassin on the Supreme Court. Not one word on holding the rioters who tore up the cities and deaths resulted. Not one word on why the vice president, Kamala Harris, put up a bond uh, for the rioters, where which basically fueled you know what they were doing and, and insulated them from any kind of uh, any kind of consolation for doing what they did is his words are meaningless. And again, the American people see through this and for him to focus now after the fact, where, where has he been for the last 19 months on, uh, on all the things that have been done to this country? He, he's, he hasn't, he's trying to put, I imagine he will focus on racism, which we all agree racism is wrong. But again, it's a diversionary tactic to a terrible uh, last 19 months directly caused by the Biden administration. Your colleague, Representative Dan Crenshaw from Texas, over the weekend was on CNN's State of the Union, and he was asked about the violent rhetoric coming from the right post Mar-a-Lago, and there have been threats against the FBI and, and, and a lot of uh, anger in response to that. Uh, here's what he had to say. Let's play clip two. And I'll tell you what frustrates Republicans when you hear that kind of criticism is, last time I checked, you know, you had even the, the White House spokesperson saying, yes, people should be out. Uh, uh, protesting in front of Supreme Court justices' homes, even after Brett Kavanaugh, uh, uh, that is life-threatened by this. And so, you know, there's, there's a double standard that frustrates the Republicans uh, quite a bit when we, when we talk about these issues. Again, doesn't make it right. I like to be on the side of it's all bad no matter who's saying it. Uh, Representative Norman, now, do you agree with the double standard? And how do we get to a place where Americans from the left and the right can come together and just be opposed to things like racism, which we're all opposed to? Well, we're just going to have to start holding people accountable uh, for what they're doing. Uh, Dan is right on the would-be assassin for the Supreme Court uh, and, and the, the people that went in her in the yards of the justice. Why aren't they arrested? That's, that's against the Constitution. Uh, why in their focus uh, on what Maxine Waters said would get in their faces? How is that not racism and advocate violence? Uh, how about the Speaker of the House saying that the rioters, when she was asked about it, they just do what they do. Uh, but it's accountability, it's stopping lawlessness at any level, regardless of whether they're a Republican or Democrat. You don't put up with that. And this administration simply has remained quiet on, you know, the, 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 the tearing up the cities and all the other things. And, uh, but yet when it comes to Donald Trump, and when it comes to uh, saying the right has done this, uh, it's just it's, it's baffling, to say the least. Are you concerned, Congressman, that this uh, summit to stand against racism and hate-fueled violence is, is really just an effort to frame political opponents as hateful and violent in advance of an election? We'll see what he says, uh, but look at his history. He's always actually incited it by the words that he uses. And it's all political with this administration, just like it's all political 
uh, and intentional on what he's doing to this country over the last 19 months. So I don't see anything's different. I don't see that he will change. I think he'll focus on uh, trying to make a political statement. And it's just words. His actions don't back up what he says. If he were really sincere about uh, about holding people accountable and stopping the the violence, he'd ha- he would have accountability procedures uh, like Ron DeSantis is doing over the on the twenty that voted illegally. He's arresting them, which is what should happen, uh, you know, with with what's going on in this country. But he has no President Biden is is the cause of so much of it by saying staying quiet. And uh, look at the catastrophe on the border that we've got. He has no intentions of shutting that down. And you're talking about violence, talking about the drug cartels, talking about the young people that are dying as a direct result of his policies. It makes no sense. And I I see no meaningful words that he would say that he's going to back up other than trying to score political points because he knows his party is about to lose power, particularly in the House. And I think they will in the Senate as well. Speaking of losing power, Congressman Norman, you were part of a group uh, who wrote a the House Freedom Caucus wrote a letter to GOP leadership uh, regarding the potential of a lame duck spending package in about 30 seconds. What are you trying to accomplish there? What we're trying to do is is not to have the budget ends on, I mean, the the fiscal uh, year ends September 30th, not pass anything until after uh, the elections in January. We do continual resolutions all the time. Shut the border down, be energy independent, stop the COVID uh, mandates, and unleash American energy. That's what we've got to do. Congressman Ralph Norman, we greatly appreciate your time today. Thanks so much for being with us. My privilege. Thank you. And to that point, it will be interesting to see if the elections go the way that most think they will go in November and the Republicans take control of at least the House. Uh, Will they be able to stop uh, the lame duck Congress, as it will be known, uh, from spending money in the way they would like before it's replaced come next January? We will continue to follow that story. But coming up next, the Southern Baptist Convention is under investigation from the Department of Justice for its handling of sexual abuse claims, essential law enforcement or meddling in religious affairs. We'll talk about it when we come back. Would you like to spend consistent time in God's Word? Then join Family Research Council on an exciting journey through the Bible. FRC's two-year Bible reading plan helps you to approach daily Bible reading intentionally. You will dive deeper into the nature of God and how His Word speaks into cultural issues of today. All wisdom comes from God, and He has given us the Bible as a way to understand the world. His word is necessary in our lives, so much so that Christ said, we are to live on every word that comes from the mouth of God. He calls it our daily bread because we need it daily to sustain us and nourish us spiritually, just like food does physically. Start this adventure today with Family Research Council. When you sign up, we'll text you with daily passages and questions that help prepare you for conversations with your friends and family. To begin this journey, visit frc.org slash Bible. First Peter 3.15 instructs us to always be prepared to give an answer to everyone who asks for a reason for the hope that we have. The mission of FRC's online center for biblical worldview is to carry out that verse by training Christians to advance and defend the faith in their families, communities, and the public square, as now more than ever, we need to be grounded in the truth of God's word. 
The Center for Biblical Worldview provides amazing written resources for a wide range of relevant issues, including biblical stances on voting, religious liberty, abortion, marriage, and sexuality. Each of these topics comes as a free downloadable PDF version, abbreviated version, and Spanish translation, along with a prayer guide. To access this written series or to sign up for the Center for Biblical Worldview's monthly newsletter, visit frc.org worldview. Did you know that from as early as 12 weeks, and certainly by 20 weeks, an unborn child can feel pain? Did you know the issue of pornography is growing among women? Did you know that pornography, sex trafficking, and abortion are all linked and on the rise across the globe? Issues such as pornography, human trafficking, drug legalization, and abortion are all violations of human dignity and have resulted in the devaluation of human life in our culture. Family Research Council stands firm on the principle that every life has value, ought to be respected, and has been designed for a unique purpose— Educate yourself on the harms of pornography, human trafficking, and abortion so that you can offer hope and help. Learn more at frc.org forward slash life. Welcome back to Washington Watch. I'm Joseph Backholm sitting in for Tony today. Website is TonyPerkins.com. Earlier this month, the Southern Baptist Convention, the nation's largest Protestant denomination, learned it is under investigation by the Biden administration over claims of sexual harassment and abuse. You may remember that earlier this year, the SBC released a third-party report examining how its leadership handled sexual abuse allegations between 2000 and 2021. The results were indeed troubling, but do they warrant a federal investigation? Joining me to discuss this is John Dawkins. He's a former acting assistant attorney general for civil rights at the U.S. Department of Justice under Attorney General Bill Barr. John, welcome back to Washington Watch. Thank you very much, Joseph. Thanks for having me. We are glad to have you because a lot of us don't understand the context in which this is happening. Uh, DOJ investigations seem bad. We're not familiar with what is customary. What is, what's your reaction to the news that the Department of Justice is investigating the Southern Baptist Convention? Well, uh, Joseph, it's very unusual, very unusual. Uh, Generally, uh, sexual abuse claims are prosecuted and investigated at the state level. I think it's important to understand that the Department of Justice has limited jurisdiction. For example, there's no uh, nationwide uh, uh, offense of criminal offense of murder, no federal offense of murder, no federal offense of rape, uh, no federal offense of child abuse or sexual abuse. Um, There has to be a specific statute that authorizes the Department of Justice to to conduct an investigation. That is, the Department of Justice just can't run around the country and investigate any type of wrongdoing. Uh, Part of that is to make sure that there is no bias um, in the way that the law is enforced in this country. And that's why what's called a predicate uh, is required, a a, uh, statute that allows this type of investigation. And just to be clear, when you say there's no, no federal uh, statute regarding rape or murder, that's not to say it's legal anywhere, but those are state law matters. And, and, and 
they are prosecuted at the local level, not necessarily the federal level in most cases. Now, this isn't totally unprecedented because we have seen uh, investigations into the Catholic Church, abuse scandals there. The Department of Justice did get involved. Is this very different than that? So, Joseph, the uh, uh, case you're talking about was an investigation that happened in Pennsylvania, um, which um, was, was fairly short-lived, um, and that was extremely unusual as well. That was an investigation into the uh, Catholic Church and, again, allegations of sexual abuse. Um, this case is, um, is different in that the uh, Southern uh, Baptist uh, convention, unlike the Catholic Church, does not ordain uh, minister, uh, ordain ministers or hire or, or fire people. And, and I guess the important point to stress here is that that investigation in Pennsylvania was extremely unusual, and a number of people were troubled, uh, troubled by it as well. And we understand that you're not inside people's minds, but what do you think would be the motivation uh, for the Department of Justice to launch its own investigation into a situation that all parties acknowledge is troubling? Well, uh, Joseph, if, if I were with the Southern Baptist Convention, I would ask the Department of Justice what the basis was, the legal basis was for their investigation, because, again, this is what has been handled, frankly, throughout the country for the last uh, three or four decades at the state and local level, uh, again, sexual abuse of minors, which is absolutely a terrible thing. Um, but again, it's, it's subject to state law. Congress has not, the federal government has not, and Congress has not passed a, a federal law that uh, criminalizes uh, sexual abuse of minors. There are laws, uh, federal laws, um, prohibiting transporting minors across states for sexual purposes and other specific laws, but that doesn't seem to be what's going on here now. And Joseph, to perhaps to more directly answer your question, um, uh, again, I would I hate to try to judge someone's motivation, so I would want to know what the Department of Justice basis is. But it's very troubling in the context we have here, where we had a Department of Justice um, that and an FBI that went in and raided a former president's uh, private home. That's something that I never thought I'd see in my lifetime, uh, the national police being called out to raid uh, the opposition party's leader's home. Uh, we also have, uh, again, unprecedented situation where the Department of Justice uh, intended to um, uh, prosecute and pursue uh, the parents of school children and call them domestic terrorists because they were complaining at school board meetings about the way their children were being taught and were being treated. That's unprecedented. And you may have seen recently that uh, the White House uh, was meeting with the uh, leaders of social media and trying to get them to, to censor by name uh, different speakers, different journalists. So there's an awful lot of apparent politicization of the Department of Justice, which is extremely troubling. And, and that is important context in all of this. And there is this growing cynicism among many in the general public that the, the Department of Justice and the FBI are not simply operating on behalf of justice, but there's kind of a, a, a political motivation, a political purpose for so much of the work that they are doing. When you look at this situation, customarily, how would something like this have been handled by law enforcement? Customarily, this situation would be left to the uh, state prosecutors, state law enforcement. That's the way it was done with the Catholic Church. 
um, all around the country, uh, with the one exception you mentioned. That's what was done in, in Boston and in Buffalo uh, uh, throughout the entire United States. That's what one would expect to see. Um, you, there, unfortunately, there's sexual abuse in many different organizations, in public schools, uh, far more cases than, than we're seeing in, in uh, religious institutions, in school sports, uh, in scouting organizations. Those are all have been handled at the, uh, by local prosecutors, which is where the responsibility lies here. And, and Joseph, there's a specific federal uh, uh, policy called the Pettit Policy, and the uh, implication of that is that generally the federal government, when a state has jurisdiction and a state is investigating or prosecuting crimes, the federal government will not bring its own indictments until the state um, has taken action, uh, unless certain exceptions are met. John Dawkins, in about 30 seconds, how do you expect this to be resolved? Uh, I expect that the... Um, uh, Southern Baptist Council, uh, I would expect, um, will not be found to have committed federal crimes of the type uh, that would give jurisdiction uh, to the federal government. So it'll be interesting, very interesting to see uh, how the Department of Justice responds to this. And, and I would add that, you know, Bill Barr and Jeff Sessions came in to try to depoliticize yeah. the Department of Justice after Obama. Um, and this seems to be going the wrong way. John, we are out of time, but thanks for being with us today. Thank you very much. We will continue to track this very interesting story coming up. A major victory for a group, group of Marines. We'll tell you about it when we come back. Stay with us. Are you a university student? Do you know a university student, specifically one who wants to grow as a Christian leader to positively influence public policy and the culture? Look no further. Family Research Council has a life-changing 12 to 15 week internship program that has prepared and equipped students to take the next step in their professional journey. With a speaker series focusing on careers and callings, lectures from prominent conservative leaders, and weekly biblical worldview training, students will grow in personal and professional development. Interns have the opportunity to work in policy, communications, event planning, and more. They will gain real-world experience working directly with our experts who will guide them in pursuing careers of influence so that they can make a difference wherever God calls. This paid internship offers fully funded housing in the heart of downtown D.C., giving you the chance to experience our nation's capital. Visit frc.org internships to apply. What is biblical masculinity? In our culture of gender confusion, there aren't many examples of godly manhood. Men, husbands, and fathers need to find a model of godly manhood, leadership, and strength. But where can they find it in our culture? Stand Courageous Men's Ministry was created to help men find this model of godly manhood and to develop a strong biblical character, cultivate positive habits, build and rebuild relationships, and make commitments that will move men closer to God's good purpose and design. Men who will stand courageous. Join us at a Stand Courageous Men's Conference to discuss critical aspects of masculinity. These conferences are led by men who understand the issues men face. They unpack our role as a defender, provider, instructor, and battle buddy so that we can make an influence as a chaplain inside and outside the home. Learn more and find a Stand Courageous event near you at StandCourageous.com. Welcome back to Washington Watch. I'm Joseph Backholm sitting in for Tony today. 
Last week, a federal judge in Florida granted a preliminary injunction against the military's COVID vaccine mandate for all U.S. Marines. This ruling came following a lawsuit filed by the Christian Religious Freedom Law Firm, Liberty Council. Some Marines who refused the shot for religious objections did so, citing vaccine research and development that may have involved aborted fetal cells. So what does the preliminary injunction mean for these Marines? Joining me now to discuss this is Matt Staver. He's the founder and chairman of Liberty Council. Matt, welcome to Washington Watch. Thank you. Good to be with you. We're glad to have you. Now, first, just tell us about the lawsuit you brought on behalf of these Marines. We brought a class action lawsuit against all the military mandates for all six branches of the military back in September, October 2021. We've had multiple hearings. We've gotten individual injunctions for a number of different individuals in various branches, but we wanted to get a class action certification so that we could protect everybody. So last Thursday, around 9 o'clock p.m., we got a great class certification for the U.S. Marines and class-wide protection. That means that anyone in the U.S. Marines that filed for religious exemption and were denied at least at the first level, they are now protected. The order is very powerful, says that they cannot be forced to take the COVID shot against their sincere religious objections. They cannot be intimidated, coerced. They cannot be discharged or they cannot be harassed in any way at all. So this is an exceptionally broad, powerfully written 48-page decision. There are now class-wide protections for the members of the Navy, the Air Force, Space Force. The most recent one is the United States Marines. We're working now to finish out the six branches with the Coast Guard and the U.S. Army. And tell us more about that, because that is really good news. And we know, uh, if memory serves, something over 60,000 members of the armed forces who have refused to get the COVID vaccine for a variety of reasons. Now, I understand this pertains to those who have filed religious objections. Does this apply to everybody who didn't get the vaccine or just those who have made uh, or requested religious exemptions? Our lawsuit includes what's called the emergency use authorization. We will be dealing with that later this fall in the trial. And that means no one can be forced to get these COVID shots because they're under EUA or they were at least certainly at the time. And that means no one can be forced, whether in the military or outside of the military, to get the COVID shots for whatever reason. But this particular injunction, the class-wide one, is for those that filed religious objections. So that's what it covers we have had a persistent pushback from the Biden administration and his Department of Defense, and then that boils down to the brass of the various military, acting as though they're above the law. And this decision really is powerful. And it says, obviously, RIFRA, which is the Religious Freedom Restoration Act, it includes everyone from the president to a park ranger, from the chief justice of the United States to a probation officer, from the speaker of the house to a member's district's office, from the chairman of the Joint Chiefs of Staff to a military recruiter, even if they don't like it and even if they don't agree with it, the free exercise clause in RIFRA are the law of the land. Very powerful words. They are, in fact, and we know, however, that thousands of military members have already been dismissed from service yeah. because of their refusal to get a vaccine, either because of their conscientious objection or health health concerns, a religious exemption or religious objections, excuse me. What does this mean for them, if anything? 
Well, we're going to be pursuing justice for them as well. You know, right now, for example, uh, even uh, the so-called uh, legacy media are reporting that the Army is tens of thousands of people below its recruiting levels. The reason is, is because people are not joining due to the terrible morale under this Biden administration, particularly with regards to the shots. Others are being pushed out like you're talking about. There is a real serious military readiness problem being created by the Biden administration. These are honorable men and women in all branches of the government that love God, love America. These are the kind of people we want in this service. These are the kind of people that Biden wants to purge from the military. We're not going to stand for it, whether they are in or out. We're going to fight for them to get justice. They are defenders of our freedom. And without them, we would not have the freedom that we have. And so we need to fight uh, for their freedom as well. But we're intending to push for justice for all of these individuals. I think, you know, it makes no sense legally, logically, or rationally for the military to continue these COVID shots. Uh, we've found now that many, many pilots are being injured. They can no longer fly. Others are being vax injured. Then they're not effective in preventing the transmission of COVID. We know that for a fact. Why are they doing it? I think they're doing it not because of health or safety, but to try to purge the men and women who are Christians and people of faith from the service. That's a very serious issue. Matt Staver, last question for you. This is a preliminary injunction. That means this case is not over. What's next? Uh, we go to trial in October of this year, uh, but this preliminary injunction is really, really strong. We've never lost a preliminary injunction on this particular issue so far, and I anticipate that this will become permanent. I look forward to a trial when we are able to bring some of these people, put them on the stand, and uh, and put some of our good people on the stand like we've already done. But I have no doubt we will win this. We have won it so far. This gives all the protection we need pending trial and beyond. Well, it is a significant issue in so many ways for military readiness, for religious freedom, for those who are putting their lives on the line. We appreciate you, Matt Staver and Liberty Council, for all that you are doing uh, to defend those who are defending us. And thank you as well for your time today. Thank you. My pleasure to be with you. It, it is a critical story uh, because of the religious liberty implications for our men and women. It is, we are in, in uniform. We are thankful for this victory. We'll continue to follow that case and that story. Coming up, Dr. Anthony Fauci, the face of the U.S. coronavirus response, announced that he will retire this year. What's the reaction from the American public? What's the reaction from Dr. Jay Bhattacharya on that, as well as a bit of Monday morning quarterbacking on COVID? We'll talk about it when we come back. What is biblical masculinity? In our culture of gender confusion, there aren't many examples of godly manhood. Men, husbands, and fathers need to find a model of godly manhood, leadership, and strength. But where can they find it in our culture? Stand Courageous Men's Ministry was created to help men find this model of godly manhood and to develop a strong biblical character, cultivate positive habits, build and rebuild relationships, and make commitments that will move men closer to God's good purpose and design. Men who will stand courageous. Join us at a Stand Courageous Men's Conference to discuss critical aspects of masculinity. These conferences are led by men who understand the issues men face. They unpack our role as a defender, provider, instructor, and battle buddy so that we can make an influence as a chaplain inside and outside the home. Learn more and find a Stand Courageous event near you at StandCourageous.com.
With the increase in tech censorship of conservatives and Christians, Family Research Council created a tech subscription platform to be sure we don't go completely dark due to censorship. It is important to us that we stay connected with you and that you stay informed. So if we get canceled, you can still access updates on faith, family, and freedom. How? Just text STAN to 67742 to sign up for our text alerts and you will get FRC's content straight to your phone. Again, just text STAN to 67742 and you will get alerts on the biggest stories of the day. With just a simple text, always have access to our content and stay informed and connected with like-minded community. Text STAND to 67742. That's STAND to 67742. Are you a university student? Do you know a university student, specifically one who wants to grow as a Christian leader to positively influence public policy and the culture? Look no further. Family Research Council has a life-changing 12 to 15 week internship program that has prepared and equipped students to take the next step in their professional journey. With a speaker series focusing on careers and callings, lectures from prominent conservative leaders, and weekly biblical worldview training, students will grow in personal and professional development. Interns have the opportunity to work in policy, communications, event planning, and more. They will gain real-world experience working directly with our experts who will guide them in pursuing careers of influence so that they can make a difference wherever God calls. This paid internship offers fully funded housing in the heart of downtown D.C., giving you the chance to experience our nation's capital. Visit frc.org slash internships to apply. Welcome back to Washington Watch. I'm Joseph Backholm sitting in for Tony. Reminder that the website is TonyPerkins.com where you can watch this and every episode of Washington Watch. Dr. Anthony Fauci, who led the National Institute of Allergy and Infectious Diseases at NIH under seven presidents, announced today he will retire by the end of 2022. He departs as something of a science celebrity who led an agency with a $6 billion annual budget. However, his leadership has been criticized, including by some Republican members of Congress who want to investigate his handling of the coronavirus response if the GOP takes Congress, takes control of Congress this fall. Joining me now to discuss his announcement and all the latest COVID-19 news is Dr. Jay Bhattacharya, a professor of medicine at Stanford University. He's one of the authors of the Great Barrington Declaration, which advocated for an alternative approach to COVID-19 and was roundly criticized by Dr. Fauci himself. Dr. Bhattacharya, welcome back to the program. Thanks for having me. Well, we booked you before the news of the day, and so it does change the direction of this uh, conversation a bit. There's so much to discuss here. Um, For context, for those who may not know, your relationship with Dr. Fauci and NIH has been uh, somewhat adversarial at times. At one point, former director of the NIH, Francis Collins, emailed Dr. Fauci saying they needed a, quote, devastating takedown of you and the work that you were doing. So that context in mind for our viewers, what's your reaction to the news today from Dr. Fauci that he plans to retire? 
Well, I, I mean, I should start with some gracious things to say about him. He uh, led the agency that did a lot of uh, funded a, the work of a lot of brilliant scientists, and uh, that that work has uh, helped millions of patients. Um, that uh, so that in, in that sense, I think uh, you know that we, we should acknowledge that he that he led the agency uh, successfully in that sense. But at the same time, his leadership during the pandemic has been an, a, a total disaster. He uh, has espoused this lockdown-focused strategy that closed schools, closed businesses, closed churches, mosques, synagogues, uh, disrupted American life and continues to disrupt American life and did not protect people against COVID. He shielded himself from criticism from other scientists and, in fact, worked to destroy the uh, reputations of, of scientists who criticized him. He showed a, a tremendous amount of hubris in his uh, in, in his in the way he thinks about the world. Uh, at one point, declaring uh, effectively declaring himself science itself, saying if you criticize him, you're not simply criticizing a man; you're criticizing science itself. Uh, the 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 net actions, the net of his actions during the last two and a half years have been tremendously damaging to the well health and well-being of Americans and uh, and in fact people around the world who followed his followed his direction on lockdowns and I think will be a enormous part of his legacy. Well Dr. Bhattacharya, you mentioned his um, his his policy with respect to lockdowns and Recently, he's indicated that he doesn't feel any remorse at all about that. And in fact, on July 25th, he seems to think we should have done more in that respect. Let's play clip six. Had we known that then, the insidious nature of spread in the community would have been much more of an alarm and there would have been much, much more stringent uh, restrictions in the sense of very, very heavy encouraging people to wear masks physical distancing or what have you. Dr. Bhattacharya, what's your reaction to the idea that we really should have had much more stringent restrictions? Well, I think the main problem with that idea is that uh, by the time he was recommending lockdowns in March 2020, uh, the disease was already circulating pretty widely around the world. Uh, the more stringent lockdowns, the premise would be, well, let's let's if we get uh, locked down early enough and, and hard enough, we can get to zero. Well, that premise is false, and it was known at the time to be false. I personally ran a study in early April of 2020 in Santa Clara County, California, and then another one in L.A. County, California, where we found that, uh, in fact, uh, 50 times more infections uh, with, with the people, there, there were 50 times more infections than identified cases in early April of 2020. The disease was already circulating. Uh, Dr. Fauci, by saying, oh, if we'd only locked down more stringently, we would have solved the problem, is is it utterly ignoring the, the science that the disease was already here, widely circulating, and very, very infectious. The lockdowns did nothing to stop them and uh, and would have done nothing to stop them, even had we uh, more dramatically closed schools, destroyed businesses for longer. It would just, just would have created more harm with all, no corresponding benefit whatsoever on infection control. Dr. Bhattacharya, to that point, the initial logic behind the lockdowns, and let's remember these were under the Trump administration, was we had the 15 days to slow the spread, which we know in some places turned into two years to slow the spread. But the logic was 
that we aren't necessarily prepared for this. We can't have everybody going to the hospital at once. Even if everybody's going to get it, let's get it slowly so that, that, that our healthcare system has the ability to meet the needs of people as they get infected, as they get the disease, so we can treat them and hopefully stop people from dying. As we look back, was there a logic to that argument that turned out to be true? No, it was not. Uh, so the main thing is to remember is that uh, the, um, the, uh, the, the United States is an enormously large place. There were some places that were hit very hard when we locked down in those 15 days, New York, for instance. Most of the U.S., much of the U.S. had very little, very few cases. Um, the 15 days, if, it, if you're going to slow the spread and reduce the hospital impact, you would say, let's do it in those places that are getting hit hardest. Um, and, and in fact, but that's not what they did. They said, let's have a nationwide nationwide 15-day pause. Now, they might, maybe they call it a circuit break or something, uh, lockdown. Um, they essentially lied to the American public saying, okay, we only need 15 days to do it when they knew that that wasn't going to be anywhere near enough. In fact, an infinite number of days to, to slow the spread would not have been enough. Um, so the, the, it was it was a mistaken policy from the beginning, sold to the American people as a way to protect hospital systems that was not needed at a broad scale. A, a much better policy, uh, one that we I think we tried to follow, was to uh, was to build excess capacity and extra capacity in places that were getting hit hard at the time, um, and that would have bought more time in the sense of. Uh, being able to uh, to not overwhelm hospital systems at the point where it was happening, and then focusing on the vulnerable, the people we knew to be vulnerable, that is the elderly and others who had a high risk of, of dying if they were infected. Um, if that message had gone out, for instance, perhaps Governor Cuomo would not have sent COVID-infected patients to nursing homes, knowing that there were vulnerable people there. Uh, the 15 days to slow the spread place the emphasis on hospital systems, protection of hospital systems. And that's why Governor Cuomo did what he did, because he wanted to protect New York's hospital systems. Instead, what Tony Fauci and others should have been doing is telling people, look, older people are the most vulnerable. Do all in your power to protect them. And then maybe instead of sending COVID-infected patients back to hospitals, he would have, uh, he would have done uh, adopted, method, uh, adopted means to protect nursing homes and other places where vulnerable people were. Dr. Bhattacharya, as we look back on this, we realize that this was a, a medical situation, but there was also a lot of psychology involved from a policy level. How do you deal with the entire country? You've got 330 million people who are very different in different situations, certainly different opinions. And one of the challenges was this idea of social trust. And White House COVID czar, Dr. Ashish Jha, he recently addressed this. I want to play kind of his reflections on, on, on how this went psychologically and then get your reaction to this. Let's play clip four. The social science of building trust, of countering misinformation, of not politicizing the most basic of public health measures, um, that part turned out to be much, much harder than I think many of us expected. I had a mental model three years ago, and now you're going to see how naive I was. My mental model was you get the science right, you build great vaccines, you build good treatments, everybody will come and get it, the pandemic will be over, we're going to be in great shape. Turns out, not so simple. Was he naive in his assumptions about how this should go? Should he have expected different? 
No, he, he actually, three years ago, Shisha's expectations were the right ones. Um, what happened was during the pandemic is that public health decided that it was going to use its, uh, its, its bully pulpit to manipulate the public. Uh, public health told uh, Tony Fauci himself and even Ashish Shah told, told essentially uh, what they would consider noble lies, right? So, for instance, at the very beginning of the pandemic, uh, Tony Fauci said uh, that you should not wear a mask. There's no evidence that masks work at all. Um, and, you know, actually, it turns out he, that was not, was not a lie. The, evid the, the evidence on masking before the pandemic, for instance, with the flu, was that it didn't work very well. Um, but then later, he changed his mind and said, well, look, uh, I, I was lying to you then because I wanted to reserve masks for the, the, uh, the hospital workers. Well, once you've admitted that you've lied to the public, of course, people are not going to trust you anymore. Um, I mean, in fact, there was, there was two lies there. One, the initial one about lying about whether masks work, and then the second lie about, about whether that they actually, he thinks that they work. And he, and he admitted that, he, that they were doing it to, to trick people so that they wouldn't, uh, they wouldn't toward masks or something. Um, on, uh, on issue after issue, for instance, on COVID recovery, producing natural immunity, uh, the, the, the public health authorities lied about the evidence, the, the, the very clear evidence emerging from all around the world that many people who, had, uh, basically everyone who had COVID recovery, who would Dr. Bhattacharya? Oh, yes, please. I, I want to get a, I want to clarify there because you just said that he believed, he knew that masks did not work, and he had said that early on, but then he changed his position. What possible motive could there be to say, use masks even though I know that they aren't going to work? Why would he do that? Well, I think part of it was that it's related to something you said, which is the, the psychology of it. They, the public health had created a, a mass panic. They created this fear of this deadly disease. The World Health Organization said the, the mortality rate from COVID was 3 4%. If you ask people around now, you, they probably still say that, even though the evidence suggests it's one-tenth that rate or even lower, especially if you're younger. Um, and so uh, once you've created that panic, I think part of the the thinking was, well, we have to give people some kind of of agency, some kind of like control over their fate. And masks are a visible, relatively relatively simple thing to do that would help give people some some control, maybe reduce the panic so that they could do something. Uh, they created the panic, and then uh, they wanted to to give some kind of you know, some, some kind of visible symbol to, to, to address the panic. I think that was primarily the motivation there. Okay. And we still see people, and sometimes in a restaurant in, in Washington, D.C., I'll see a group, particularly of young people, it seems, who are walking in all wearing masks. Now, I want we only got a few minutes left here, but upon reflection, what should we have what should we have done differently? What should we do next time if we face a similar situation? The main thing we should have done differently is recognize who was most at risk. The most at risk were people who were older. The, the death rate from COVID infections is much higher for people who are older, minuscule to zero, uh, almost zero for, for children. So we should have worked very hard to protect the people we knew to be most at risk, the vulnerable, the vulnerable elderly, and maybe some others in the population with, with chronic conditions make them, make them uh, at, at risk. On the other hand, we should never have disrupted the the lives of young people who face so little risk. We should not have made them feel guilty. Uh, we should have given, uh, we should have moved heaven and earth to try to protect older people 
while not disrupting the lives of the younger. I think the, the investments in vaccines and treatment, those were actually really good ideas, and we should have done that. But we should not have taken that and then turned it into a, a weapon to destroy the lives of people who who, had, who were skeptical about the vaccines or for whom the vaccines were not a particularly great idea. Uh, we created the sense of clean and unclean. We, meaning the pub public health did, saying if you were vaccinated, you were clean, unvaccinated not, and just excluded unvaccinated people from public life. A civic life. That was an enormous mistake. Uh, I mean, I think, and, and more broadly, we should have followed what the science was actually saying, as opposed to try to use science as a weapon uh, to, to manipulate the, the behavior of the population, which is and which ended up happening during the pandemic. Dr. Bhattacharya, um, as you say that, uh, you know, that we should have protected the elderly who are more vulnerable, not disrupted the lives of the younger people. That's not a new observation. There were people who were, including yourself, I will say, saying that very early on in the pandemic. Why do you think that argument uh, was, was not more persuasive with those who were making the policy decisions for the country? I think the people who ran the policy decisions for the country, people like Tony Fauci, were blind to the harms of the lockdown. And they were so enamored with themselves and with the ideas that they had that they thought that any opposition to it was ipso facto uh, a, uh, illegitimate. They, uh, when I actually made that uh, yeah. that that proposal in the Great Barrington Declaration in October 2020, Tony Fauci and, and Francis Collins organized essentially what I would call a propaganda right. campaign to destroy my reputation. Um, right. I think hubris blinded them. Once they saw they, that they, they thought that that the lockdowns would work, they looked at China and thought that it would work. They thought, okay, well, we're just not implementing it hard enough. We're not doing it well enough, even though the evidence was very clear very early on that it wasn't going yeah. to work, and they wouldn't change their minds. And very quickly, again, about 30 seconds, what have been the uh, consequences of the policy decisions that we made on, on people's lives? Millions and millions of people around the world are dead who not would otherwise not have been. I, I think uh, the, the lives and livelihoods of, of, of hundreds of millions of children have been harmed uh, in ways that they'll pay the cost for the rest of their lives. Uh, businesses have, are, are, are gone. And nevertheless, we've had a you know, you know uh, an incredible spread of COVID everywhere. I think it was a, a, the single biggest public health disaster of all time. And Dr. Jay Bhattacharya, I want to have you back on just to dig more into that because that's a, I know there's a lot going on there and in the consequences of this that we fully uh, don't understand yet, but we appreciate your courage throughout all of this and your willingness to come share with us today. Thanks. Thank you. Friends, that's our program for today. He's a great example of the willingness to uh, speak truth to power when there are consequences and there were consequences for him. We will continue this tomorrow on Washington Watch. We look forward to seeing you then. Until then, fear God and nothing else. Washington Watch with Tony Perkins is brought to you by Family Research Council and is entirely listener supported. Portions of the show discussing candidates are brought to you by Family Research Council Action. For more information on anything you've heard today or to find out how you can partner with us in our ongoing efforts to promote faith, family, and freedom, visit TonyPerkins.com. Also, to leave a comment about Washington Watch, call our watch line at 1-866-372-7234. That's 1-866-372-7234.